0: An idea that stood out to me was this idea of kryptonite—the idea of the things that neutralize our effectiveness as, as men of God. And men of God does not mean like uh, the uh, the man of God, but it's really having to do with us accepting the responsibility to wear the garment that the Lord has asked us to wear. And again, we're reading that First John passage. I mean, uh, cha- the chapter we looked at there, where we were talking about the stages of maturity in God, and wherever the Lord is calling you to be in. The interesting thing about that is, you can be a young man and a, a younger man, relatively speaking, and because of the number of years that you may have had walking with the Lord you're already beginning to not only be asked of the Lord to carry the weight of someone in the middle as like a, a, a the, the kind of a bulwark person in the in the church, but you're also moving yourself into a fatherly role as well. And there are some who come to Christ much older in years, and sometimes you can be starting, as it were, as a young man in the faith. But I think a vast majority of of us, you know, when you get that combination where... You're, you've, you're not a beginner anymore in the Lord, and you still have a lot of years of strength physically left in you. I mean, Skip touched on something absolutely crucial relating to that film, is that, I mean, life truly is passing. And I've often thought about the pros and cons of living long. And I think that, uh, you know, aging, It's you know, I a lot of I think people are living, by, by and large, you living longer. But aging has a certain humbling uh, attached to it. It was hard not to see, uh, particularly in the early part of that film, and also at the end, how uh, Jack Lemmon, the father, in the film we saw last night, you know, he, he increasingly had, had childlike tendencies because of the physical weakening and the the aging process and uh, that's a humbling thing. I remember my grandfather he, uh, he was uh, in his late 60s when I really first gave my life to Jesus and I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and that radically altered my my life uh, as a teenager really in high school and um, he he emerged as a key figure in my life but I got him in his late 60s, in his early 70s, and his body was already given out on him. And uh, he had lived a hard life. And one of the things he kept telling me is, this, you know, um, his, he says, we have this body of humiliation, he would tell me. And uh, he, he says that he, kinda, he was talking about how it was a humbling thing for a man to grow old. And... You better have something underneath the surface. If as your body's given away, it doesn't show up immediately. But part of moving into the into our years ahead is cultivating a character uh, that will show up. I was uh, listening to an interview between Bill Hybels, who some people might know. He's a Skip called him last week, a pastor in the Midwest, but he's he's pastor is one of the, the, he's an author, but he's, he's re- probably one of the high, most, most recognizable Christian leaders today. The Ch- Willow Creek Church movement has had an enormous effect. Um, he was part of the pioneering of the seeker movement for all of its pros and cons. It's definitely affected the, the evangelical world and the, and the culture in general has been affected by it. Anyway, he was having this conversation with Gordon McDonald who wrote a book called Ordering Your Private World I can go, he's, a, he is, he's someone that, he's in his, nearing 70 now, he's someone I really respect. McDonald was talking in this conversation, they were talking about, um, what was the word they used, the responsive life, it was the resilient life, it was the resilient life. And McDonald was talking about the age when men are most vulnerable to failing. He, he is someone who's unique. Early in his ministry, he was considered a Superstar. And he he had a failure. He failed. He he sinned, and uh, it was a one a one time thing. But it marred his ministry. What he did, his uh, he modeled he modeled for everybody what it meant to be a submitted man in his brokenness. He completely submitted himself to a, a season of healing. Uh, he he submitted the ministry. He stepped out of ministry. Uh, his wife chose not to leave him. in fact, she ended up standing with him through the entire process and and it ended up being a, a really you know pretty powerful testimony as the years went by of a person who recovered from a shipwreck and unfortunately, he always will have he 's always known as you know a person who has failed and come out of it. but as the years have gone by he 's become quite an expert on people who people who fail often come to him and as, a, as over the years he's been known for his resiliency and now he's got 30 years of faithful ministry and it's just been a real testimony to the graciousness of God and he, he just he modeled a pathway of restoration and what I'm one of the things there it is possible for people to be restored maybe things will never be exactly the same as they were but you can recover you know, there's something about the promise of the Lord that some of what has been lost will be returned. It can be recovered. Not everything. There will be scars associated with decisions and traumas of our past. That's just a fact. And some things can't ever be exactly what they were. I was reminding myself, and I'm like, going, I'm going way, way off here. But reminding about the temple and how when they rebuilt the temple after it had been destroyed by Babylon. They came back, they rebuilt the temple and people were rejoicing the temple's being rebuilt but the older men, the older men started crying because the Babylonians had stripped the original one down and it was so beautiful, you know, Solomon's temple. And um, they stripped it down and when they rebuilt it, it didn't look anything like the glory of the old one. So the young guys were all happy because they said we got a temple and the old, old, aged ones who remembered, they cried. They wept. They wept not because they were unthankful but because they wept because it reminded them of how much they had lost. And that was, you know what that's called? That's called bittersweet. Now, Okay, wow, that's real encouraging, Pastor. I really encouraged us there. <laughs> what I'm saying, I'm being, I'm being honest that there are some things we can't get back. One of the things that hurt me the most, watching my father. And um, my father, my, I, I settled with my father, a lot of my anger with my father. For I felt like he abandoned us. And him and I always clashed. We were, we were clashers from my earliest years. But my dad got broken. And I'm not going to... Down the years, you will not hear me sharing on this too much. But my dad, he sort of caused the breakup of our family, and then when it happened, it killed him. I mean, it really killed him emotionally. The irony was, he was a big part of why it broke up, just the way he was handling things, immaturely and, and anger, a lot of anger. Frustration with his life. And then when the family falls apart, the only thing that he had, even though he destroyed it in many ways, or at least contributed to it, he completely disengaged and um, squandered of so many things. One of the biggest things he squandered and gave up was he, out of his hurt, he disconnects with his family. And like a lot of us, we tend to do what, what was, who was the, what was the one was John Tremont and one was Jack, what was Jake. Jake. Jake was the father. The Jack Lemmon, Jake Tremont, what does he do? He doesn't want to... See, that film was all about conflict. When I first saw that film, it was around a discussion, uh, totally around conflict resolution and met- different ways that we resolve conflict in our life. And you'll notice that everybody handled it differently, right? But one of the ways that the father handled the conflict in the family, this, over, this strong, controlling woman, the, the son breaks off Derek. This is them. they clash, right He goes off, does his own thing, he's going to be a success he doesn't need there but the dad, what does he do? He, he pulls out and creates a fake reality. So his coping mechanism with the conflict is what a lot of men do. He detaches away from the problem and you know they have their whole explanation for it, which is part of the reason why the film early on you're going, what is this? this farm thing deal here, where he's trying to figure, and then it comes back again and again, and you're going, what's going on? Is that like a flashback to this? you? What's happening? He's created his own world where he's in charge. No, you know, dominating, dominating Betty there, right? <laughs> Calling the shots, telling him, no, no, put the I'll do it for you. I'll do everything for you. You know, and, and, and we can debate whether or not she was a character and is unfairly treated, you know, but the bottom line is, she was so strong that, and and it was he. The guy pulls away and creates his own his own fake reality as a coping mechanism for handling the conflict. You know what? He loses so much. And I'm going to suggest that a lot of times, a lot of us, this is our way of dealing with stuff. We don't we don't want to deal with it because it's too painful. I'll, I'll go I'll come back and then come back to where I left off two points before that. But one point was that I remember when I was playing soccer one time, and I've told this story before, but I, I remember as a teenager, the Lord taught me a lesson about avoiding. Because I was a, I was a Christian and um, just really starting my walk with God. I was serious. I wanted to please God. That was important to me. And I wanted to, to affect people with my life for the Lord, I mean, real. I did. It was an honest desire, and maybe sometimes overzealous. I was playing soccer on a field in Millbrae, um, and I remember a guy who was a few years older than me who would, we would play together, pick up soccer, and, and I, it was just a non. It, the game meant nothing. But the reason I'm not even going to do any anything this afternoon is the reason that's connected to this is because um, it meant nothing, but. I couldn't play it like it meant nothing, and so I was doing my normal stuff, and, and I hit the guy, and I hit him a little bit from behind, and uh, when I got up, I looked at his foot, and I've told this before, but his foot was completely the opposite, di- I mean, it was totally, I, I looked at it, and it was the opposite direction, I, I couldn't believe it, I, he was screaming, I I I looked at it, and I knew I hit him, but I didn't really hit him, it wasn't a completely, it was not. I didn't try to do it, but I did it. And, and I just was like on the, on just, you know, I couldn't believe it, I was on my knees, I was just, you know, devastated, guys in pain, we called 911, he, you know, his, basically his whole year, that year was out, he was out, he, he couldn't play. But the reason I bring that up is because I was so bothered. By what happened, and I felt so bad about it that I didn't want to talk to him. So he goes to the hospital, and I didn't want to talk to him, and so I, I felt so, I, it was so uncomfortable for me to even have to face him. After what I did, I chose not to go see him. Finally, about, a, a, you know, days later, I go, and he says, Brisbane, man, what's wrong with you when I showed up? He goes, man, why don't you even come to, to check and see how I was doing? I mean, I barely got there in time just to hear myself get you know, told that because i waited so long. And the reason I waited is I didn't want to face it. I, didn't wanna, I felt bad. I didn't know what to say. I, I felt awful. I, I knew there was no... So in my, the, the, what I'm saying is what happened was I, the pathway that I chose was to avoid the whole problem and not even deal with it. And I'm saying that a lot of guys do that. A lot of guys, and I learned, a, I learned a big lesson there. I mean, I learned a lesson. I said, Lord, by your grace, you know, I will face up to stuff. And I, draw, you know what? I draw off of that failure now, even now, you know, what? Almost, you know, 25 years later, I draw off that failure as a reminder to me not to, not to take the easy route out of things, but to, to go and drink your cup and take it. Because you know what he said? I thought... I thought this is what he said. Now, the years have passed, but I I said, I thought you were some kind of Christian. Now, whether that was exactly what was said, that's what I heard in the phrase, what kind of guy are you? But I got like rebuked by a guy, you know, and here I'm talking about Jesus. It really, I mean, I felt, I felt, I felt like a failure. And it it has affected me because there's been a couple of times where I've been put in situations where, honestly, in my flesh, I just wanted to say, you know what? I don't want to deal with it. I'm I'm disappearing. I'm going. And I fall back on that experience and remind myself, you know, Lord, you taught me a lesson that representing you also means stepping up and dealing with stuff. And I, I say that now I'll take the step back to my father. My father, I think he was so hurt. He didn't know how to deal with stuff. And so he rationalized. And we were having this conversation. I was having this conversation with Jake as well early, last night after the film. He was telling me about his son and certain things in his life. And I don't I don't necessarily have permission to share that. But there was a whole lot of similarities between his past really before he's come back to Christ. And fully dedicated himself. In the, and the residue. Relational residue. And Mitch, I was talking to Mitchell as well. Where are you, Mitchell? And Mitch, same thing. About... Estrangement, relational estrangement, relational separation between fathers and sons that have occurred a lot of times because of, for whatever the reason, we, we start thinking, well, the best thing is do it. I don't want to deal with it, so we just check out. And there's something, guys have a tendency to check out on stuff. It's like stoic, we compartmentalize and we just say, you know, I don't want to face it, so I'm just not going to deal with it, and I can live with myself. But I, you know, when I went back to my father, and, you know, one of the good things was, I got, one of the first things the Lord dealt with me in my early uh, Christian life development as a leader. Because I had a, I noticed my, I was having a temper issue. And that was a, te- and that was an issue that my dad had with me. And um, I started asking God, you know, Lord, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't want to, ha- I'm noticing stuff coming out of me and I don't want it. And I prayed for the Lord to heal me. And one of the things that, the, 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 that I felt was important for me to be healed was I, I had to not be angry with my dad. I had to let that go. I had to leave it at the feet of Jesus. Really. That was a key for me breaking through. And so, you know, and I will say this. Over the years, I really, truly did no longer have an anger to him. I actually started to feel Compassion, and compassion is a mixture to me, how I define it. Compassion is a mixture of sadness and and pity, and uh, love and pity, really. And I felt I felt the real sadness from because you know what he never, he never got to see his son shave. He never showed up to one game. He totally he's twenty minutes away from his grandkids. Never once saw one of their times them ever play a game like and I think my brother is more affected by that than I am I kind of like had to work through it a while ago and I accepted it and my point okay when I went and prayed for him we went back to the roots because he had been a good father the first 10 years of my life really good father provider anyway a man, a man that was—he was, he was the guy he was the father bringing home the stuff faithfully I said, Dad, we I mean, just to make sure you're right with the Lord. We've got to pray. You, you agree with the words we're about to pray? He goes, of course I do. You know, I believe. in I believe. I've never stopped believing. I wasn't looking for some magic ending. I mean, honestly, some special moment. It, it was just, do you know what I, I felt coming out of that was the sadness of a life poorly lived. The sadness of a life poorly lived. And all that was lost and all that could have been. And I want to challenge some of you guys to think about both that theme in the film and what I just shared about my own life, to really think about what it means to, to live well for God with whatever time we have left. And to not squander it by getting stuck in some unreality some bondage to sin that keeps us from ever really being able to soar the way we were supposed to soar in God. What if there are habits that we have acquired through our own willfulness or whatever, to really think about what it means to get free, to get real, to be who we were meant to be in God, to not live in duplicity, to live in a dichotomy of reality, but to live true to the Lord's purposes and to love well to lead well. Some of you have far more leadership capacities than you give yourself credit for. And the Lord knows there are tremendous leadership needs in this church as a healthy, good, honorable men to step up and to be examples and fathers. And, and we've had Tom and, and Brother Felix, and, and we've had these conversations in some of the men, the little men's meetings that uh, we've had. And just the, the need for some brothers to really step up. I know you're busy. But, you know, God's, and I think we were talking about why, why is it that sometimes men don't step up? And I think a lot of times it's because we feel unworthy or it's, it's like, ah, i let somebody else do it. You know, so I, I, anyway, let that be the backdrop of where we're going to go in whatever time we have left. Life's short. For long, we will not have it. One life to honor God with. i um, I've tried to squeeze out lessons in this season. Every season of suffering has a lesson in it to be lived out of. And I'm trying to think through the idea of of living well for God because life will pass quickly. And before long, we will move through the stages of life. And going back to the McDonald conversation, which I never resolved. Part of what he said was, he said, you know, guys are most likely to get in trouble. And he goes, at, at, he, he had an age because of all the people he's dealt with. He says, around 46, he goes, I've seen more shipwrecks at 46 and 47 than any other period of life. And he talked about all the reasons why he went into it. It was very interesting to hear it. But you know what? One thing he said that really stuck out to me, he said, you know one of the reasons why that happens? He says, in that period, all the character issues that were sowed, in the 20s and 30s show up. Because things happen. He started describing the life passages. And he says, in that period, he says, you start comparing yourself, you start assessing yourself, you start thinking about it, you've got different pressures, you're physically not what you once were. There are issues that start to show up. And he says, in that place, all the character that's been developed in those early years, stuff that you get away with early, he says, it all starts to show up. harvest and he says a lot of guys have nothing they have given such poor attention to their character development that when that heat comes they don't know how to handle it and they unravel and they make big mistakes I was going wow that is intense that is intense turn with me to 1 Peter 2 verse 11 1 Peter 2, 11. And um, the verse, beloved. I love that. Loved of God. That's the first thing to notice. We're loved of God. All of us, beloved. Beloved, I beg you. Wow, what a... First off, loved of God, my brothers, loved of God, I beg you. I beg you. He could have used a lot of words. I exhort you, I command you, I direct you. um, I speak to you, but I beg you. It's like I appeal to you in the most humble way that you would see yourself like this as sojourners, As men on a journey. I'm going to be talking about Abraham in the fall series that I started on this weekend. And it has everything to do with being on a journey with God and gaining ground. So in many ways, it's perfectly connected to what we're looking at. Peter says, I beg you as men on a journey and as pilgrims. Pilgrim is someone who's, what, starting on their way, who's, uh, there's a new beginning. Um... There's an adventure component. I want you to, as you're traveling through, to abstain from the fleshly lusts, which, notice, what is the phrase there? The fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I just, something about that. In other words, what he's saying is this this earth is not our ultimate homeland. We are passing through. We're sojourners and pilgrims. What we need to remember is there's an eternity waiting for us, whatever that's going to be. We are passing through. And as we're passing through, we're involved in a war as Christian men. And we are to guard against. And you notice what he says is particularly, he says, the fleshly lusts which war against our minds. And I thought, man, Peter's writing this, you know, know, 2,000 years ago. And, I mean, could he have envisioned uh, a culture like ours where it is so, it's such a sex-crazed world? I mean, that's just, technology has made it honestly more difficult than ever. Pleasure beckons to us. Escape beckons to us at every corner. And I think men are particularly vulnerable because of our sexual drive, but other things too. Our need for affirmation our need for feeling that we still have, have things. I mean, you know, there's the pure raw component, and then there's other components that are emotional. And I think we're very vulnerable. In the handout that, and we're not going to look at this, but Kyung referred to that one insert where it talks about um, his, uh, what was it? In your in your binder, uh, there was that article that he was referring to, uh, what was it? He call, What did you call it? The black door, was it? Was it? Same thing. All right. Walking through the black door of denial. Yes. Now before that, page, before that, that article, which is like about eight pages in or nine pages in, there are these other two pages that just sort of look like they got attached to the essential father article. The essential father. You can see it. It's the first handout that's in there. If you were to keep going through the essential father, it's in between the essential father and the Boot camp walking through the black door of denial are these two pages that are not differentiated in any way shape, or form they're actually attached the way the way it's put together here right in the middle. these two pages which um, you'll notice that the sequence changes right it all of a sudden it turns to page 107 and the, it says red alert can't get enough. You might want to check this these pages this is how this has to do with um, with the idea of why things go off physically inside of us that makes us vulnerable to succumbing to the flesh. Very interesting article on how to overcome a stubborn habit. In that, in that book, it talks about how what, the, what certain types of stimulation do to our body and why, in many ways, sexual stimulation is, is very similar to a kind of a drug, it begins to create a certain chemical reaction in our body, like a buzz. And in that article, in these two, in these pages, it's, dis, it's discussed. I mean, <laughs> it's discussed. Well, that's true. But it's also discussed that um, that that there are physical aspects to temptation as it pertains to the flesh, and. This, this doctor writes this, but he's a Christian doctor, and he talks about how these sensations produce a certain type of response in our body. He called, them, he called them sensory receptors. He talks about it. I mean, I thought it was interesting because what he says is we get addicted to certain feeling that comes over us, and he describes it in the book pretty interestingly. I mean, it's almost like it was uncanny. It was, clearly, he understood it. And um, I was thinking about that and this whole idea of stimuli, and how we're affected by things like that. And he was talking about how really once we step across those lines, it, it does become very difficult to just go back. And, and the scripture, again, notice the script description that Peter uses. He, again, for the verse we read, he, what does he call it? He calls it a war. And there's something about I mean, he could have used a lot of terms to describe it, but he calls it a war. And there is a certain relentlessness, listen, to this battle. You see, there is a relentlessness to the battle. We are engaged in a struggle for territory, and it sometimes is a mortal struggle. It's for our life, our life in God. It's a war. Don't let anybody tell us otherwise. We are engaged in a war, and a lot of that war is associated with fleshly lust, bottom line. And there are some... Here, I'll put it another way. There are some seasons in life where I think it's harder than other seasons. And there are, so there are some life passage moments where it's harder than others. But there's also sometimes, some seasons in our life where hell seems more active in its pursuit of our demise as well. Hear what I'm saying? There are some, uh, for example, oh, as time has gone, I have a theory that the enemy comes back to probe things. And, again, Peter talked about it like a war. But the enemy will come seasonally to probe things. So that we might say we've gained strength in a certain area, but all of a sudden it comes back. Have you ever, you know, what I'm talk, there are times where you're going, man, I am feeling so strongly tempted right now. Multiple directions. And, and we are just feeling just sort of the struggle at a level that we hadn't felt it, say, for months. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're just experiencing this, like we're in the middle of this battle that it, it just, you know, we're, we're thinking, I'm going to be lucky if I survive this thing. It's so intense what's going on inside of my heart right now and, 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 what, and the struggle I'm having to resist the temptation or to not go all the way into it now that I've crossed lines. And you know the danger. Once you cross the line, what is it? I blew it anyway. So what do you do? You go all the way. Once I eat, start eating, you like, ah, eat the whole thing. Afterwards, you gorge yourself. And afterwards, what do you feel? Awful. Awful. And the more you love God, the worse you feel. The more you love God, the worse you feel. Why? Because you say, Lord, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to, to be disloyal to you. I love you. But my words seem hollow. How you lead anybody when you're beat up like that, it's a war. There's a re- uh, he says that war against the soul. It's interesting. Peter wasn't the only—he Peter was talking about fleshly lust. I talked about the enemy coming at seasons, and what I'm saying is that we are to be vigilant, to be sober. Peter also says, "For your enemy is a roaring lion; the devil is a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour." There is this idea of being a prey; that there's a there's a pursuit of you. Listen, you know, Pastor Jack Hafer, who I admire greatly, early, fifteen years ago taught a concept. That Satan, the enemy, that hell has designed a scheme, a stratagem for your demise. That there is a unique strategy that has been understood by hell for your demise and mine. I'll show you what I mean. Look at Ephesians with me. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Let's go there together and we'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brothers, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against. Now, I don't know what all the versions you guys might have. In the New King James Version, it says against the wiles of the devil. The word for wiles... Is a word that is connected. Interesting. What is that? What's an interesting word? The wiles. Well, you know what is that? The tricks. The the. Um, anybody have any different versions that you're reading from? Strategy. Schemes. The other word would be strategies. Interesting. Look what that is saying. There is a strategy. There are schemes. Now that is Paul saying that the evil one has actually designed a scheme. The wiles. The wiles of the evil one to pull us out of this game, to, pull, to injure us, to take us out. And he's saying, do not be ignorant. Put on the whole, that you may be able to stand against the stratagem of hell, the unique recipe that has been designed to take you out. And it is there. Put on the armor, that's why we're to put on the armor of God we're told here because, and notice verse 12. You say, well, you just, just using military metaphor, right? No, he says, we wrestle against not flesh and blood. Our real battle in the Christian life is not with people. It seems like it is more than half the time, but really it's against principalities, he says. When you get down the core, the core, when you get beneath the veneer, behind the veneer, when you look at what's really lurking behind the shadows of so much of the conflict, lust, temptation, people issues, It's the enemy trying to undermine whatever God has called, whatever gifts God uniquely gave you. And some of you, man, God gave you you beautiful gifts to contribute for the Lord. Some of you have administrative gifts that just are, are beautiful. Many of the men who are serving here have this awesome servant heart gift. Some of you have pastoral shepherd gifts. You can take a group. And you can provide love and nurture. and be- You know what a, a real pastoral gift is, according to my understanding of the definition? I'm not talking about the office of a pastor. I'm talking about a pastoral gift. A pastoral gift is really the gift of a shepherd. And a shepherd is actually someone who can invest relationally in people for a long time and begins to know his sheep by name. That is a pastoring shepherd gift. Many of you have that gift. You have the ability to invest relationally into other men and and to be able to care and walk with them through a long journey. Think of Psalm 23 as a model for a shepherd, working with men, working with people. Some of you have that gift. Some of you have enormous administrative gifts. Administration is a key gift not to be underestimated because it releases people to get the job done. It it actually sets the structure up for things to get accomplished. It gets us there. And I'm just using two things. Some of it, you can go off. Intercession. The ability to dispense mercy to people who are broken, beat up. We talked about the body having all this, But you know what? The ability to use those gifts are completely neutralized. If the enemy has devised a strategy, if he can't take you out, and I know this for me too, because I know this, he wants to take me out. I know it. I'm fully aware of it. Leave me bleeding on the side of some road dead in terms of my ability to really do the work God called me to do. There's no question. No question about it. But it's not just me. And if the enemy cannot take you out, listen, the next goal, I'll keep saying it and say it and say it every year I can, <laughs> then the next goal is to neutralize you. As you're in your ability to effectively administrate the purposes of the kingdom of God. In other words, if, you can't, if he can't take you out and get you to renounce your faith completely, basically die, then the next best thing is to shut your mouth. So you've got nothing to say because you don't want to be a hypocrite. And so the gifts that God put into you, instead of getting mad at leadership, get mad at the evil one and deal with the character issue deal with it you gotta if they've got if the enemy has a strategy then what is then we have to have a counter strategy now part of it is put on the whole armor of God then I'll talk about that in, I'm running out of time and whatever towards the end here if we get there We don't notice, again, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What is the evil day? What is the evil day? It's not the day of of, (laughs) interesting what he talked about there. The evil day is the day of, of intense testing. That's what it's the season of intense intense testing in your life where the enemy shows up big on you and your ability to stand and endure in that season. You say, well, I've already failed a number of times. Righteous man will fall seven times and get up. One of these days, we build a momentum and when it comes, we stand. We gain strength. We be, I was talking to someone about the power, it was Jacob actually, about the power of positive momentum. A lot of times after our failure, it seems so bleak that there's this, I'm never going to get out of this hole. I'm always going to fail. I'm always going to have this secret side to me, this little alternative reality that no one knows about, or at least very few people do. And the only people that do would be the people who sign off on it and won't judge me because I don't want to be around anybody who's going to tell me what I'm doing is bad. I already know it. So we avoid the people who are going to call us up. That's the problem with accountability. Accountability only works when we want it. Otherwise, it means nothing. It's just a nice thing to say. But what if a person doesn't want to be accountable, it doesn't matter what kind of accountability group they're in. Because you just tell what you want to tell. At the end of the day, it's what do we, do we want to be? <coughs> because if we want to hide stuff, we can always do it. stand in the evil day. David. You could argue skip alluded to David. In 1st Samuel that Dave, when David gets into his sin with Bathsheba that's in 2nd Samuel 11. He's he, normally he was out fighting with his brothers but this time he was in a place of reclining. He was many many Bible Teachers have said that if David had been where he was supposed to be, he would have never fallen the way he fell. And we can debate that. But typically, David would have been out with his men fighting, but he was was reclining in the palace. He, He got soft. And it was that day when he casually walked out. And what does it say? He saw. Saw. The eyes have it. So much of our problem is what we see. Says that he saw Bathsheba. I <laughs> mean, how relevant that is. He cast his eye when no one was looking on a naked woman, and it started him down. And he and he loved it. And it started him down a pathway that resulted in 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 him killing, basically, not with his own hands, but he did it. He set it up. A man who was one of the mighty men of Israel, Uriah. This is one of his legion, one of his own. He steals his wife. And then has him eliminated just to cover the whole thing up. He tried. He tried to get the guy to come back and sleep with his wife. But the guy said, Uriah says, you know what? How can I do this when my brothers are fighting on the field? Know what? I'm not going to. So he sleeps at the door. He won't even go, I mean, I'm going, that's a different culture, obviously, but nonetheless, the guy, won't, the guy has so much integrity. In contrast, David is going, what am I going to do now? The guy the guy is so loyal, so faithful. So he says, I'll kill him. I'll, I'll, I'll tell him to withdraw, leave him alone in the battlefield, these guys. So it's, a, it's a mess. The whole thing starts, though, how? Just casually looking. And that led to a, play. by the way, we say Now, well, David, doesn't David get forgiven? He does. He becomes a model for forgiveness. Psalm 51. But you know what? He lost the child. First child dies. Solomon's number two. But I'll tell you something else that happens. The Lord says, look, I'm sparing you because you had a repentant heart. But you know what he brought into his family? He brought so much problems into his household he got so much residue associated with that that it's true. God was merciful, and I thank the Lord for His mercy. And God restored him. And a lot of people say, well, "How could God restore David?" And we're going to talk a little bit about the man in contrast to David, Saul, uh, tomorrow. Actually, tonight I'm going to share on Saul as a model of how to lose out with God. The eyes have it I, because i I'm going to to have us turn here real quick to Genesis 13, okay? I I can't go in the full... I believe what I said at the beginning was what I was supposed to say, but I do want us to sit in this thought for a moment real quick. I'm not going to go into all the examples we have, but this is the one I'm going to pull out, Genesis 13. I mentioned to you I'm going to be talking a lot about Abraham and Lot and uh, is certainly involved in Abraham's life. It says in 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, Then Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. And Lot was with him to the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Now, Abraham got wealthier when he went to Egypt. But um, go to verse 5. Lot also went with Abram. His name hasn't been changed yet to Abraham. It's just Abram. And he had flocks on her. So Lot is also described in verse 5 as a very uh, rich man as well, a very prosperous man. Flocks, herds, and tents. And now the land was not able to support them they that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. They got... Con- <laughs> and I want to preach about this in the weeks to come. This particular conflict that emerges because of blessing. They succeeded in their plan and that succession meant their division. The conflict, and this is not the subject, but the conflict was a direct result of a success. Which reminds us that there are always consequences. We always think, oh, there's consequences consequences to our failures. There's consequences to our successes. This too I have seen. And dummy me did not see it coming because I didn't understand that success also has consequence, achievement has consequence, getting the dream accomplished has consequence, it does, relationally. It changes the equation from what was and it makes everything different and how we negotiate. We always think, oh, it's only the failure and the destructive aspect of the bad things that create the conflict. No, good things create conflict as well. But that's not our real focus here. It says the strife between the herdsmen and Abraham's lot was so great that finally Abram says to Lot, "Please, look, this guy, man, he has flaws, but he's awesome." He says, "Look, you know what? I don't want us to fight. He was dad. He was dad last night. That was one of my favorite scenes. Scene, scenes in the whole film was when the father. They're fighting. Remember the dad? I mean the son." It, Ted Danson and uh, Olympia Dukakis, they're fighting right back and forth and it's escalating and that escalation of that conflict, the words that are going back, he gave you 50 years, remember that? Then they stand up, the next one stands up and it results with her slapping him on the face. You can see the emerging, that's how fights happen because you've got two strong people and all of a sudden he says, I oh, don't fight. <clears throat> We're family. He says, I hate it. I don't like it when we fight beautiful peacemaker at that moment. Something about that got me because I've been in, I mean, you know it. Don't do that. It hurts me when the people I love fight. It hurts me. I thought that was was beautiful. And Abraham said, I don't want to fight with you. You're my nephew. You're a son to me. You're my friend. Let's find a third alternative. And he did. And Again, a couple weeks from now, I'll share on that in the weekend. But notice, it says, "Verse." This is where I want us to get to. It says, "Is not the whole land before you, Lot?" Please separate from me. There is a separation that leads to blessing. At least from Abraham's standpoint, we'll see. If you take the left, then I'll go the right. Or if you go the right, I'll go to the left. It's your call. And Lot lifted his eyes. There's the phrase. There's the phrase look at the eyes have it so much of our kryptonite issues so much of the stratagem of hell is connected to our eyes when david walks out he beheld with his eyes in the garden the woman looks at the tree and she sees it and behold she looks at it and her eyes saw that it was appealing so all the eyes jesus talked about the eyes interesting being the portal into our mind it's the gate it's the eye gate sometimes it's called the eye gate into our being into our soul how much of our issues deal with stuff from our eyes coming right into our being how much of the strategy of hell is built around our eyes lot righteous man but weak you can be a righteous person and a bad decision maker with bad priorities You can have a heart that loves God and make a mess of life because it's it's decisions that are being made out of a wrong context. Lot is a man, he's a picture of a person who's purely dominated by his commercial interests. He can't help it. It got him. And so all he sees is opportunity in Sodom. He looks at it. Notice here it says that he set his eyes, he lifts up his eyes and he saw the plains of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. And then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. Very interesting statement here because if I were, his eyes are what's going to get him. His, think about it, His whole demise, which ends up, by the way, with the loss of his family. He loses his family. They don't respect him. His appeals to God at a key moment. When the angel of the Lord comes, you can study it out. When the angel comes to Sodom and the appeals he makes, the warning of God that comes to him, his sons laugh at him. Son-in-laws laugh at him. They laugh at him. His daughters don't receive him. Why? Because they don't respect his word. Because it's not been lived congruently. So when he makes the appeal, God's speaking to us. They say, "Ha, ha God. Disregard. There's no re- respect because it's not been modeled out. What he's modeled is a life that is more self-oriented. Look, what happens? The first thing you notice here is that it says that uh, Lot chose all of uh, Abraham dwelt in the lands of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And notice that verse 12, verse 12 there. What does it say he did? He pitched He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Do you, you know what happens? The, it starts with the I. The next thing you see, Lot's, tents are pitched towards Sodom. Then you go further down. If we had time, we would just kind of walk through this whole thing. The next thing you see a little bit later, I think it's 14.1 14, 14, uh, 14, uh, somewhere right in there. There's that whole war that occurs there. Lot's actually living in Sodom. Oh yeah, then they also took Lot, verse 12, Genesis 14, verse 12. Genesis 14. They also took Lot, Abraham's brother, son, who dwelt in Sodom. So the first thing we see is Lot starts out looking at it and he's going, wow, that's that's a beautiful place to be. I can make so much money. So he pitches his tent towards Sodom. The next picture, Genesis 14, where is he? He's in Sodom. And then, if you check it out later, by the time it gets to the fact when they enter into the city, Lot is sitting at the gates. He's an official in Sodom. He goes from his eyes looking at it and wanting it to the next thing you know, compromise, pitched his tent. I'm just going to do business with these people, nothing more. So he just pitched his tent towards Sodom. Next thing, he's in Sodom. The next thing, he's at the gate of the city as an official in Sodom. A series of compromises that ultimately result in the loss of everything God gave him. And without him, by the way, he would have died if it wasn't for Abraham interceding. He would have died. He was righteous. He would have died. The only reason he was spared was because Abraham interceded on his behalf before the Lord. This is the heart of right, in, in, We wouldn't even know that Lot was a righteous man if we weren't told. And that's specifically in the New Testament. It says the heart of righteous Lot was vexed every day by what he saw. very interesting. Okay, I don't have a lot of time left, so I have to skip to the points that are going to be basically how then can we deal with this kryptonite. So stay with me. Here's the the practical components. You just think about them. We've got a lot. We've got seven hours before we come back of of time to do the activities and things like that, lunch and all. So let's just stay focused best as you can for these, these last little handle points around it. I think Skip alluded to this. So what can we do about it? How can we deal with the kryptonite? How can we deal with this uh, I-gate issue? How can we deal with the scheme of hell? Well, I think firstly, and again, without coordination, but we need to be ruthlessly honest about our weakness and tendencies. And I mean, the word I actually was ruthlessly honest. I mean, that's the irony of it. I mean, you you heard Skip, who if some of you guys want to see a model of what the grace of the Lord can do in your life, is really see what God has done in the life of, 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 of our brother Skip, Pastor Skip. Because truly, here was a person who's, who really had a, was in bondage and, and has to live with some of that residue. And yet he's established clear lines, hasn't he? And this whole idea of our weakness and tendencies may be connected, you guys, to our family history. Certain families have certain sins that are passed generationally down. Some of us come from a family of alcoholics. Some people come from a family of temper with, with temper. Some of us come from a family who our father and our fathers or have always been womanizers. Some have lived duplicious lives, dabbled in homosexuality. taught to guys who have dads who lived a secret in a secret world had to deal with that there's a lot of stuff there it might be connected to who we are just dispositionally you know we all have unique makeup as a person and so we have certain sins that we are more prone to falling into Um, I'm convinced there's a connection between some of the things my grandfather's struggled with and some things that I struggle with I'm convinced of that and it's an issue that I've thought about a lot. Why does the enemy have access into me in these areas? What did I see that showed me? See, think about, think about why certain things give, make you weak immediately. Reflect on that. Some of us is connected to experiences in our pre-Christian past there's stuff that we we engaged in, and our hands were very dirty. And we did stuff. And even though we've renounced that past, we've been covered with the blood of the Lamb. And that's why I love communion. Because I still need covering. And the communion time, which I, if I were you, I'd never miss it personally. When we gather together as our people. Because it's a day to say, Lord. I am clean in you together as part of this community. I I take the blood and the bread and cover my sins afresh. That's just me. I I feel strongly about that. But the whole idea, is, some of us have stuff from our past. We were covered, but you know what? We are always, you heard it from Skip. He said it far more eloquently in that area than I could. This idea of stuff that he has in his past, that he has to be, you know what? He doesn't drink at all. And so there are things that we have to just be honest about, about that, you know what? I know I am weak in this area, and I don't care about my pride. And someone else, look, I'm not laying that necessarily. There, overt sin, we can say, that's wrong. If you're sleeping with women and you're not married, that's wrong. Don't play any games. It's just it's bottom line in the Word of God. Call it what we make. God's not going to bless that. If we're getting drunk and partying that's wrong bottom line black and white but there's a lot of gray there's a lot of gray and, and Skip talked about how we have to be careful about judging one another in the gray areas that's true but you know what you better we need to be a lot we need to be very wise about what we are safe to do what well, god has said listen what was the sin the sin of covetousness is what Jesus said, take heed of, beware of covetousness. Why did he say it? What is covetousness? It is wanting something that is outside of God's will for your life. So it's not a black and white for me and for you. It's not the same thing. Because if God says, that's out of bounds for you, Terry, then that's out of bounds. But what about John? We're not talking about John. About you. And for you, that's out of bounds. That's, that's called coveting because I've appointed a span of what I've allowed you to walk in. Be blessed in it. But when you step out of it, that's, that is not my will for you. We may, it may be connected to our failure. Stay with me as a Christian. So, in other words, it may be connected to stuff in our past that we deal with, and it may be connected to. Because we say, oh, well, that's part of my past. And the enemy will come back and he will, haunt, he will haunt us with things of our past. And I'm not always sure which one is more challenging. The haunting of our past compared to maybe experiences that we've had versus the feeling that what would this be like? Those are both temptations of the enemy. But it may also be connected to experiences that we've had in the present, in our present Christian life. And the experiences that we've had in our present Christian life, a lot of times we do stuff as Christians that get us into trouble. And as a result, um, we end up paying the price for it in a big way. All right. Um, let me quickly go on here. We'll finish up. Looks like people to getting ready for lunch. All right. Let's double-check double this. Secondly, acknowledge our dependence on the Lord and His Spirit. Acknowledge... The acknowledgement of dependence on the Lord and His Spirit. I, uh, oh God, I commit to you what I cannot let go of. Please work out what I work in me till I am willing to let it go. Hear that prayer by Washman Nee. I'll just say it. Oh God, I commit to you what I cannot let go of. Please work in me till I am willing to let go. Simple. It's about acknowledging that we don't have the strength. God has it. Thirdly, The establishment of preventative habits. Sometimes the only way to turn the table is to starve the flesh. Don't fuel the flame. Some things can be monitored, other things need to be cut out. We talked about this. Jesus talked about radical measures, didn't he? He talked about the whole idea of just letting things, in a sense, you know, be completely removed. Alright, four or five. Accountability and friendships. You know what? Everybody's going, so
1: but I feel like
0: I feel like I'm letting them down too. So they don't get a chance. You know what? I'm just gonna um, I'm gonna finish up later. I'd rather do that. Um, Lord, I thank you for our time here. I ask you for your blessing. And um, I take seriously your work, Lord, and what you're trying to say. And so I pray that you would take these words as we go into this afternoon. I know we're going to be doing a lot of other stuff. That's fine, Lord. And I pray we have a great time. In fact, that might be a gift for some, just to have some good, healthy fun. Lord, let us get not mad at anybody. No fights. No fighting. No fighting, Lord. Uh, whatever, Whatever is done in a good spirit of brotherhood, Lord. And I pray that we would curse no man. And remember that we have the bond of peace to share with one another. And then also, Lord, that there would come um, a a sensibility about getting ourselves ready for the evening, Lord. Because we don't want to be so, so thrashed and out of our game, Lord. Let us give ourselves time to prepare our hearts for the evening that is to come. As we just bring this little lesson to a conclusion and perhaps go into the next one. Um, I just pray that we would really be thinking about you, what you're trying to say to us, Lord. I thank you for my brothers. I pray that we would be mighty men of valor um, by your Spirit. And I just ask for your blessing over our food, over our communications together. Just this entire gathering and retreat be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.